Hi everyone. My whole day. Like, it... <laughs> sorry, Brian. <laughs> <laughs> I apologize. It just got really pitch black out here, like in overcast. I'm like, should I turn the lights on? Is the sun not going to come back out? <laughs> My bad. <laughs> it's going to be another secret okay. sound at the end of this episode. Okay. Go for it. <laughs> Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Comics Deserve Better podcast. I am one of your hosts, Brian, and with me, as always, are Carrie. Hello. And Richard. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> and, and welcome. No fault starts this episode, I promise. No more fault starts. Um, you know what? We'll leave it in that fall start. Why not? And uh, sure. we'll we'll go from there. Okay. okay. Well, we do talk about indie comics and not just weather. Not just the weather. And we're here to uh talk not about the weather. That indie comics. Thank you for rejoining us. I know it's been a couple weeks or a few weeks. And we're here to party and to rock and roll, like always. Yes. <laughs> that sounds like um, a teacher yeah. going like, all right, kids, let's rock and roll. It kind of reminded me of the uh, the Simpsons with the, um, Al Gore, when he plays the, the um, you know, the, the, the party song. He's like, you know, come out and party. He's like, I will. <laughs> you know, like, I have no idea what that reference is. Sorry. Yeah. Like celebration, yeah. No, I, oh, I, I okay. do know what the reference is. Like, oh. It's just that Al Gore's boring, and even an Al Gore celebration is boring. It's basically oh, the premise of the joke. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's Thank like playing you. that celebration time, and he's like, I will. Oh, that's funny. Oh, All okay. right, we are now joined by Jason Douglas for right. our very well, special uh, DIY we actually corner, have a very special our first DIY one ever today. With a uh, guest. That we're going to stitch Thank you for in joining just a us. Few seconds, my pleasure. Thanks for having but, me on. Um, that also means once again, we'll come back as well. Yeah, my corner, and, we're not doing spotlights. Uh, we are here to but, talk about uh, that. Means that more spotlights your, are going to be uh, extra special next episode. That actually has a few uh, more days left. Um, so let's go ahead and, and something uh, that you get all going should, uh, with our in on my corner as soon as you can. Take it, Brian. Uh, please give us a synopsis of the book. Yeah. So, so this is this is a little bit of a different experience for me because this is my very first Kickstarter. Right. Mm-hmm. The, the last time we talked, we're talking about my first book, Parallel, which which had the success it had, you know, it sold out, got me two Ringo nominations, but it was published in a very atypical way, right? It was mm-hmm. scooped up by a publisher before it was even completely written. And and here I am finally making a comic the way that you're supposed to in the 21st century, especially if you're an indie creator. And so uh, this experience has been amazing and new and terrifying. And I'm happy to say that uh, Jane American got funded Yay! in the first four days of the campaign, which means it will exist in the world. And now we're nice. working on stretch goals with these Latin hit, trying to do a big push here at the end. And we can talk about that in a little bit and how important these stretch goals are. But yep. the book itself is deeply personal to me. And we'll get into that as well. Um, the way I want to kind of tell you guys about it beyond, you know, going to the Kickstarter and checking it out. And, and Brian, we talked about this off air ahead of time. Like, I think the page is much more eloquent than anything I will do right here, but it's good <laughs> for people to hear it too. So I'm going to kind of go reverse order here. I'm going to tell you that we're looking at a 32-page one-shot, um, but I'm kind of changing that into like a 32-page hybrid because it is a self-contained story with a beginning, middle, and end. You're going to get the story you need out of it, but it's also a bit of a hybrid because it's an introduction to Jane's world as well. Um, and it's really exploring the deep universal themes of identity and gender and self-worth and self-fulfillment. And it's set in a, the small town, restrictive societal norms of a during and post-World War II small town America. Plymouth, Michigan, historical place where I grew up is where it's set. 
Um, you're getting hints of beloved stories like Superman for All Seasons uh, and Archie 1941. And metaphorically speaking, you're going to see a lot of mutant metaphor in X-Men throughout here because I am a comic book nerd at heart. <laughs> um, what I'm going to promise readers of this book, backers of this book, when you get your digital or physical copy of Jane American in your hands, if you, if you, if you support us in the Kickstarter in the next few days, I promise you that this story is going to break your heart. It's going to make you cheer, but it's going to also leave you with a shocking cliffhanger ending that's going to have you begging for more. Okay. Um, Story-wise, we're talking about Jane in 1946, just post-war, uh, doing the coming-of-age story, 15-year-old female protagonist with a more than enough responsibility in her life for somebody coming of age in this time in America with these kind of restrictions. Um, but family tragedy has triggered something in her. I'm going to give you a little bit of code here and give away what the story is really about. It's changed her in unbelievable ways that are better left hidden. That is, of course, course, course code word for uh, ordinary people, extraordinary abilities without saying what that genre of comic books are. Because <laughs> I want you to love the, uh, the, the splash page at the end. Um, but economic hardships presented by the end of the war. Um, when your father isn't coming home from the war and your mother can no longer be Rosie the Riveter because we have reverted back to pre-war standards of where women need to be. Um, they've kind of left Ooh. Jane with some choices and a very big choice that she can stay safe, she can stay hidden, or she can embrace who she really is for the sake of everyone she loves. Um, Jane American is this deeply personal story to me. Um, Parallel was a big personal story to me because... It is basically my midlife crisis that it was time to write a comic book, right? <laughs> um, this is a deeply personal story to me because it's inspired by and named after my late grandmother who fought against, not entirely successfully, a lot of the same societal restrictions and being put in that societal box in post-World War II America that Jane struggles with in this book. Um, there's family names throughout the book. Like I said, it takes place in Plymouth, Michigan, uh, historically where I grew up, my parents grew up, and my grandparents came home from the war too. Um, it, it actually, oh, half the story is set in an actual factory called Wall Wire that existed in Plymouth that got a war contract during World War II. You know, all the other suburban Detroit places uh, and all the factories, uh, you know, GM and Ford were making tanks and bombers and all the smaller factories were making component parts. This place that my great grandfather actually physically worked in during the war made these things called Marsden mats, which even if you don't know it, if you're a history nerd, you know what they are. Those are the long kind of corrugated metal sheets that they made the temporary runways out of. And they could build a runway wherever instead of having to capture a runway or build it from scratch. And this got a war contract for that. And that's kind of where most of this is set. Um, and it's not only inspired by my late grandmother, it's very much dedicated to my now late grandfather, who just last month made it to 99 years old oh. in a month and a week before he passed away. And uh, this is very much dedicated to him because this project uh, in the last couple of years of his life meant a whole lot to him. Oh, that's well. awesome. Yeah, he um he actually used to keep the, um as he was kind of ailing at the end, he was uh, he kept the script next to his bed. And like read it every couple of days. And every time a page of Annie's art came in, which you can see the five preview pages on Kickstarter, like it brought him to tears. And uh, the last thing that he actually got to see before he passed was the two amazing um, exclusive covers by uh, some pretty awesome artists that I got, uh, Cena Grace and Malia Ewart for, for the exclusives on the Kickstarter. And it gave him a lot of joy. Um, 
And, and that just meant a lot to me. And I, maybe we can talk about the research in a little bit because he got to be part of that too. And that was a pretty mm-hmm. amazing experience. But the other group that this book is really dedicated to are actually um, all the students who have passed through my classroom in the last 23 years, who even in the 21st century, still struggle with those same mm-hmm. restrictions of identity and self-worth and just embracing who you are because a parent or a teacher or a peer or society in general tells you that it's not okay to be you. And you extrapolate that back to 1946 when those norms were even more restrictive. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of the beating heart uh, of Jane American. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You do mention the, the, the you know issues like LGBT rights and, um, and like, you know, helping those with autism. And uh, those are definitely modern, you know, things that are going on today but uh now it's in the 1940s setting did that feel how did that feel awkward to like set it to that because like like you just said you know like you know it's, it's all about you know representation and like and like exposure and, and like you know gender narratives and everything like that and that was definitely a part of the 1940s but um i you know it was it was slightly different so um how were you able to kind of put like a modern slant to all well of I, I i don't i don't I, I don't think it was difficult at all mm-hmm. um for two reasons one mm-hmm. and and i kind of hinted at this earlier like I, I think once well it goes back to the stan and jack days but but claremont did it the best once the mutant metaphor in x-men for the past you know 60 years or whatever mm-hmm. has been this kind of magical thing in comics where as a metaphor um, as a loose metaphor, it was allowed to be a stand-in for anybody, mm-hmm. okay? And especially in the 60s, it was obviously very much uh, a kind of draped way to talk about the civil rights movement. Um, the X-Men have been stand-ins for almost any group you can think of over those last 60 years. But I think personally, from a storytelling perspective, mm-hmm. it hits its stride when it combines the metaphor with actual direct representation in the book. And that's something I wanted to achieve in Jane as well. You know, it's not, it's not necessarily an X-Men story as much as it is inspired by that combination of, of putting those two things in your book at the same time. So you have got, you have got Jane, you have got, again, without me saying the, the magic genre (laughs) word, um, you know, ordinary people can do some extraordinary things. You know, she, she has this catalyst moment when she finds out in 1942 that her dad's not coming home. And now she can do some things. You have got that classic genre metaphor and Jane can be your stand-in for anybody, right? Mm-hmm. But she's also a young woman in this time period. Her mom was also a Rosie the Riveter, right? You've got a lot of actual representation in the book. And especially when we hit the 120-page OGN that is going to come after this, it, it spreads out and it's not only about gender, but it's also about race and historically what was happening at that time too. So in, the, in I was inspired by that kind of writing that, that X-Men I think has done so successfully, at least over the last 30, 40 years about not only allowing the metaphor to relate and be a stand-in for anybody, right? So even if there isn't a direct representation of something that you relate to perfectly in the book, you can find your way in for that if the writer is doing their job. So I've got yeah. that, but I've also got a lot of direct representation because I I, 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 th- I I think maybe you were hinting at this, Brian, like mm-hmm. 1946, just because society didn't publicize or, 
or group X, Y, and Z wasn't directly in the news the way that they are in the 21st century doesn't mean those people didn't exist because yeah, they absolutely. certainly did. It's mm-hmm. just the repression was so much more intense that that like the the closet metaphor becomes quite almost reality for for more groups than ever before. Okay? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there was definitely a severe whitewashing, you know, you know, not just with race, but with like basically any other person. You know, in 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 the society at the time. race, religion, identity, yeah, orientation. Yeah, and and, and yeah. guys, that's I mean, that's that's where look. Is this for my late grandparents in a lot of ways? Is this for their memory? Is there is there is there some some family pride and some some actual my family's history pride in this book? Absolutely. But the 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 thing that drives me, the thing that allows me to like go on shows and speak about this passionately and mm-hmm. and like. Go 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 to signings for for parallel special edition that I'm out there you know in the world selling right now, but really spend most of my time talking about Jane American. Is that simple fact that 80 years removed from that, I'm watching young kids come through my classroom and having the same struggles that, by any measure, should have been long dead in the past. Mm-hmm. Here we are, 80 years later, and they're still struggling with the exact same thing. What what I think is so cool and i know that's kind of a blase term for what about i'm about to say but like i i actually do think it's really incredible that you jason a from what i'm assuming straight white you know cishet male yeah that you are writing about perspectives and you're with the with the sole goal of being all inclusive now there's look i don't carry i can't i don't know i mean i don't know why i'm wired the way i'm wired but i do know that i have spent the majority of my life like working with people younger than me okay Mm -hmm. because like i've been teaching for 23 years but i you know swim lessons before that was a coach for the special olympics before that like it goes back to me being 14 years old and i started working coaching and teaching kids and, and like, my wife likes to make fun of me that I don't, I'm not <laughs> mentally and emotionally, I'm never more mature than whatever age group I'm teaching at the time. So like for 13 <laughs> years, I capped out at 10 and nice. now I'm like a surly 13 or 14 year old. Cool. But yeah. there is maybe Carrie, maybe an unfair advantage to that too, because I spend so much of it. It is hard. I would have to try so hard not to live empathetically mm-hmm. through these children that are in my care and I live and breathe for at a minimum seven hours a day, five days a week. But the reality is you take it home with you too. Mm-hmm. And, and like, I don't know, I, 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 however I'm wired, however I was raised, I know that I don't have the ability not to, not to see it through their eyes and not to walk in their shoes at every opportunity, you know? And so, and so it kind of comes as something where like, like I appreciate you saying that, but like, I don't don't know. I don't know any other way. Like I couldn't, I couldn't not, um, I guess. And and maybe that's an advantage as a writer too, like write what you mm -hmm. know. And I have this, this totally unfair advantage that my life is spent with nothing but diversity. Nothing yeah. but every single day, every different type of human being, shape, size, 
makeup, orientation, socioeconomic diversity. It's like literally in my room and switches over every 48 minutes. Mm -hmm. And it's a whole nother group of diversity coming in. And like, and like, like, like I, I soak it up and then, and then, and then, you know, and I just, I, I feel pretty pa passionately, at least in this case of putting it on the page too. Well, it's like, you know, since now we're on the, the discussion of being t teachers ever so slightly because, you know, we've bonded over that before. Yeah. But like you have the passion and the ethos of a first year teacher. You know what I mean? But you have yeah. the, you have the wisdom yeah. of someone who's been in the field as long as you have. And I think that's a really magical element to your writing is because you do see it from the perspective of other people so naturally that you are one of the more inclusive authors that I've ever had the privilege of writing. Now, I think stories should be told from the people that live them. So I love reading queer authors who write about queer experiences, et cetera, et cetera. But to see someone like you, who I want to say maybe 75, 80% of comic book readership identifies with, you know, cis het white male. Yeah. Like you writing these types of stories, I think is so important because you're, I don't know if you know this, but not a lot of white dudes do that. So you're actually creating a pathway for other people to be like, oh, I can write about all sorts of different characters. I can write about all sorts of different things and be inclusive and not, you know, rely on racist stereotypes or anything like that. But you can still include everybody and you don't have to, you don't have to be just, I'm white male, I write Batman, you know, like, or that. Sort yeah. of <laughs> because like, I mean, and I have talked about this multiple times on the show. I think I, it's always been very hard for me to go into a local comic book store. It's always been very hard for me to get into superhero comics because the, it's been hard for me to get into fucking gaming because of the, mm. of the gatekeeping that right. is usually done to me by cis het white men. And it's just, it's so refreshing. And you're literally even in your passionate career, you know, your, your, your side hustle, so to speak, mm -hmm. you're still fucking teaching. You are teaching people about something. And I don't, I, I mean, I want to get that across to you because, and I'm getting angry sounding for some reason. I'm really <laughs> sorry. I just had a venti like espresso thing and I'm like fucking full of coffee. So like, I do think it's really important and I, I'm angrily saying thank you, goddammit, because I think it's, I just think it's so cool. You know, I, 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 I really, really appreciate that. Um, and, and, and I, and I truly think, and I'm, I'm not the best at taking compliments and I'm, I'm really, really, listen, 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 180 teenagers a day. I've got a master's degree in self-effacing humor because if you cut yourself <laughs> before they can, you oh, will yeah. survive longer. Right. But, mm -hmm. um, I, I I honestly think there's there's some unfair advantages too because like like I have been I've been a reader and a fan exponentially longer than I've been a creator so that means I live this entire life outside of the industry at least the production side of it mm -hmm. um 
before I ever stepped into it. So like there is, you know, there are people who would call the way I have been managing the last handful of years across two books and like two and a half projects, um, a place of coming from a place of naivety. Um, but it also has this advantage where I'm not, I don't, the, the, the BS that you're talking about, whether it be gatekeeping and gaming or the, the, the stereotypical norm of how most comics are written or who the mainstream audience is or whatever, it's like, it's not, it doesn't even register with me. Like it's not even something that's on my mind or whatever, because all I'm doing is creating what I know. And it just happens to be, I've got this unfair advantage that what I know is, is like, I'm, I'm living with diverse group of humans every single day. Do you know what I mean? Now, having said that, I'm also, I'm also like, you know, self-aware enough to know that it's one thing to say out loud, um, I embrace diversity. It's one thing to know that that's how I feel and I live and I breathe, but like people are allowed to say whatever words they want, whether they're true or not. And so it was also very, very, very important to me that the creative team on this was an extremely diverse group of people, right? Mm-hmm. And I mean, like Dr. Christy Blanche, uh, like we come, like we, our group comes in all kinds of bizarre ages, shapes, <laughs> sizes, and orientations as well, you know? Um, uh, Brian mentioned earlier uh, LGBTQ and autis- autism spectrum and, and young people and old people. I mean, Annie, my artist, is 21 freaking years old, you know? <laughs> oh, baby. Like, like it, it, it takes all of my willpower that when we interact that I don't like, she says something and I don't react as a dad or a teacher. <laughs> and I just need to react as like her, you know, her equal peer instead. Uh-huh. Cause it's like, there's days where I just want to adopt her, you know, <laughs> and, like, and like Dr. Christy Blanche is like a multi hyphenate. And, and it's just like, like we're, you know, and, and Cena Grace for God's sake, did it cover for me. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, I just, you know, I hope people believe me and I hope people listen to, to what you say that, that, and I hope that the, the stuff that I write comes across sincerely because I have no desire to crowbar in diversity, right? If yeah. the story is about something, that's what the story is about. It just so happens that the story is about the, the fact that, that society for most of its history has decided that if you don't fit into this box, uh, you're not okay. Right. Like that's the theme of the story. And there happens to be real history that I can base it on, which is really one of the things I'm most proud of this book. Like I re- like exhaustively researched this thing, guys. I am awesome. one of the um one of the over the last couple of years and the last couple of projects, one of the things that I have come to clearly realize that maybe one of the tenets of me as a writer is, is that if I, I believe that if I'm gonna ask you as a reader to suspend your disbelief about anything parallel. I ask you to suspend your disbelief about uh, a parallel version of yourself reaching out from the other side and offering you a second chance at all the dreams you thought were left behind. If I'm going to ask you to believe that there's a 15 year old girl in a world where this doesn't exist, that can do things that other people can't. um, I'm going to make sure that every single other aspect of the book is exhaustively researched because I do not, I repeat, I do not want some pedantic nerd 
because I am one, to come after me and say, "Oh, that ice box shouldn't be in their uh, shouldn't be in their kitchen in uh, 1946 because that model didn't come out until I would." I don't care. I don't care if the book sells a billion copies. I don't care if I win awards. If one pedantic nerd calls me out on the model of the car or uh, or the, the the you know the, the the layout of whatever, I will be devastated. Well, so, like, actually, my yeah. nuts. it's like the it's like the goofs page on uh, IMDb. Um, oh yeah, for, for sure. It's like oh, it's like this wasn't made until 1957, and the book comes out in 1955. Like there's That's so much right. fired. Oh from- God. I tell you what, so like for as much like research as I did on like the little details that most people won't notice, right? Like when you see a telephone in the background in a 1943 mm-hmm. scene or a 1946 scene, when you see that ice box back there uh, in 1943, that is a 19 mid 1930s ice box because not only is it pre 1943, but this is a family with not a lot of money, so they're not going to even have the 1943. <laughs> that's a great call thing anyway. You that know is- what I mean? Yeah, exactly. that's smart. Yeah, you're you're not gonna have the state of the art 1940s stuff in, in. But I'll tell you what, the the, mm-hmm. the bit of research that that I'm, I don't know if proud of is the right way to say it, but definitely the one that makes my heart swell the most is actually the wall wire factory that about half the story takes place in. And, yeah, and Jane's mom worked in as a Rosie, and then post war, that's kind of the crux of the story of Jane going to trying to find a job there because of the economic hardships of of the troops coming home. And um, that factory was a real factory in Plymouth, as I mentioned. My great-grandfather worked in it. And the best part about this is uh, my grandfather and I, a couple years ago, got to actually take a tour of the actual wall wire factory about a week before they tore it down and segmented it into office space. Oh, And wow. that means that the whole thing was stripped of all the second half of the 20th century and early 21st century uh, doodads that were all over the place. And it was stripped down to its bare bolts and it looked exactly like it looked in the 1940s. Oh, and cool. so I got footage and I got pictures and I got video. And when you see it in the book, it is not coming out of Annie's head. It is not coming out of my head. When you see the, um, the punch clock over on the wall, that's where the punch clock was because I saw the shadow of it <laughs> when I went and took the tour, right? That's cool. When you see where that conveyor belt is taking the Mars de Mats down, where this big climactic scene happens. That's exactly where it was on their way to the little train depot out in the back. Very, very and the cool. fact that my grandfather was there with me and I could see it in his eyes, um, like being mm-hmm. transported back to this time in his life where his father-in-law worked in this factory and he came home from World War II and visited him there. It, it's it's a priceless moment that I'll never forget. And now I get to put it out into other people's lives as well. That's so I awesome. mean, any historian will tell you a primary resource is the most invaluable thing ever. Absolutely. Definitely. It's, you know, you, can't, you cannot put a value on how much talking to someone who was there, you know, does in, no matter what kind of other research that you do. Uh, that's pretty amazing. Also, just really quick, you are probably one of the best people to to interview about stuff because you're seriously hitting all my questions without me asking them, which is wonderful. Well, Brian, I forgot to tell you, I I wrote up a lesson plan last week Uh and I've been rehearsing it in front of the kids. I haven't actually been teaching them anything for a week. I've just been practicing. That's awesome. Sounds perfect. 
I, I, that's, that's the kind of dedication I expect for this podcast. I've got success criteria. I got learning targets. It's tied to the Common Core state standards. We're good to go. I, I would. I do have a question. I do about... have a question. I do, don't think we have hit though. Oh yeah. Um, just before when I was looking at the Kickstarter, and I was really yeah. interested just in the material. But now that we've talked and everything is, you know, this is such a personal aspect to it. Um, this is just a one shot. Is this something that you want to revisit, or do you think you said everything oh, yeah. that you wanted to say so, in this one book? So, so I'm going I'm to tie this to I'm going to tie this together with a financial piece, and then what comes next. So, one of the reasons that we were able to hit our goal in four days even without me being like a major creator in the field and us not having like, like backing of, of Mm -hmm. a a publisher early on. I mean, the the way 21st century comics are made, obviously Mm -hmm. you sell fund and then maybe the publisher comes after that. Um, You know, parallel was a very atypical story as you guys know. Um, One of the reasons why we hit that, that goal in four days is because the price of this book, our original goal was several thousand dollars lower than what a typical book of this size with this kind of talent attached to it usually costs. And that comes from the fact that I'm not getting a penny. From it, okay. Part of that lower uh, goal to get out in the world is because none of this is coming to me. Hey, you guys know I'm a public school teacher. I make like 12 cents a day. I'll <laughs> um, so, so part of that was that. Plus I put a lot of hustle in this. So, so check this out. The book itself, Richard, it's getting printed in Plymouth, Michigan, where the story takes place at a company that's been printing stuff in Michigan for 40 years. It's a historical company in Plymouth, Michigan. And what that means is, because I still live fairly close by to my hometown, it means I'm not paying for shipping. I'm going to go pick them up. And suddenly I can knock a couple hundred bucks off of the the Kickstarter price. You know what I mean? So I did a bunch of stuff like that. I worked in a comic shop for my buddy for weeks and weeks on end to get the brags and boards. I'm shipping every single one of these books to my backers in Mylar. And I can afford to do that and actually take something off the price because I'm doing these side, like as Carrie said, these side hustles to make it more affordable for people. Now, cool. here's where the extension comes. Even with our stretch goals, which we have two of, we've got one more to go. Mm-hmm. Every single dollar of above and beyond our goal, which is usually where the creator takes a little off the top. Sometimes that's how uh, indie creators actually make their living. Not a penny of the stretch goal money goes to me as well. Every single dollar is going to defray the cost of Richard, the 120-page graphic novel that follows this, which is Jane's entire story. So it really, this is like the passion you're hearing from me now extends to the big story that I want to come afterwards. Um, But look... You know, as successful as this Kickstarter has been so far, and we still got some days to go and we've still got some ground to, to, to cover, the idea of a graphic novel on Kickstarter, 120 pages plus, the price tag on that is like Would have been 20 a lot grand more. plus. And it just, like, I couldn't foresee a world, no matter how hard I worked, where that was, <laughs> where that was possible. And so what I did was I dedicated this push that, like I said, every dollar that we go over our goal and we're a few thousand dollars over that is now going to come off of that cost. So because I truly believe in having both versions of the story out in the world, I'm willing to make it as, do everything I can to make it as possible as possible. No, thank you for making it make sense for me because just yeah. before we even started the interview, just me going through the Kickstarter page, I was like, 
this is very dead spur like just a very dense concept for 32 pages so i'm happy yeah. to hear that we're, we should expect more you know what's funny about that i you are not the first person to say that i, I was on a show a week or two ago and they're like we were talking they're like that's a lot of stuff that goes down in 32 pages i'm like yeah you're right but but some inside baseball for you guys Mm-hmm. The original 32 pages were actually 22 pages. Oh, wow. This is actually, there is so, like, from my opinion, looking at it from the bigger perspective, there there is so much more character breathing in these 32 pages than the original way that it was written. Um, like, like, like the connection between Jane and her father before he goes off to war, it like, it, it literally breathes. And there's all these major things that I set up and, and inner interrelations between characters. Look, I think everybody would have dug the 22 pages had we done like a four issue kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but I wasn't lying at the top when I said these 32 pages are going to make you cry. I'll tell mm-hmm. you what, if you don't, if, it, if you don't get emotionally impacted first time through, I challenge you to read it a second time and not have your heart ripped out. It happened. Dude, I wrote it. And I reread it the other day because I'm working on like the next chunk right now and stuff like that. Like I'm 48 pages into the big book and I, I was mm-hmm. rereading the 32 and and knowing how it ends and knowing what happens and going back to the beginning and stuff that the first time you're reading through is, oh, that's sweet. Oh, that's nice. Oh, that's kind of cool. It's going to lay you flat. I mean, I mean, part, I mean, I know part of it is because of who it's connected to in my life and who I've lost recently. But oh, my goodness gracious, my friends. It, uh, it it hits, I think, that second time through. Wow. That is not a selling point for me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, here's you're going to take it as a selling point, be Carrie. Bad. It's, it's still, it's still, <laughs> I, um, another one of my tenets is rereadability and bang for your buck. Yeah. And the fact that you can read a piece a different way a second time through there's no more better value than that. I mean, that was parallel, right? I mean, that was like the whole yeah. idea of like, once you get to that splash page at the end of parallel and you decide what happens to land at the end, you go back and reread it. You're reading it completely different the next way. Absolutely, yeah. Things come. Yeah. Look, I don't know how much that was intended, but I think that might be like a writer instinct for me. Like I yeah. want you to be able to reread something and get more out of it even the second time. Oh no. Oh no. As a historian, I'm, I'm very, very, very interested in, in this book. I'm very excited for it. It's just you also told me I'm going to have my heart ripped out. Yeah, to, but it's like, but it's not, in a, it's not in like a, like a, like I never want to see it again kind of thing. Like you're going to okay. love the characters, and it it hurts, but it, it's 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 right, and I I hope it rings true. And um and and yeah, it, it, it's not going to make you hate anybody, and hopefully it won't make you hate. <laughs> not at all. <laughs> well, we already have our copy coming to us once uh, everything fun. So we've already we've already uh, put our money in on the Kickstarter. So, hey, if any retailers listen to the show, mm-hmm. I'm telling you, I built. So I had a lot of fun. I mean, it was a lot of hard work, but I had a lot of fun building the Kickstarter. Like Richard, you've yeah. been looking at it, and you know it's mm-hmm. my first one. But like, I, I hope when you like when you look at the covers and you look at the tiers that I built, um, what probably hopefully shows through is. You know, we're talking some pretty highfalutin ideas here and some pretty, um, you know, heavy thematical concepts. But, like, I'm a comic book nerd at my heart. So, like, the fact that you have, like, this beautiful kind of Norman Rockwell-inspired ex- uh, uh, um, cover by by Malia, 
who fresh off of her stint as an animator for DreamWorks and now doing good boy covers in her own book for Source Point with Garrett Gunn. Cool. Like you look at that cover and then you notice that one of the tiers above it is I, I made sure that there's a chromium cover because I was a valiant and image nerd and Marvel nerd in the 90s, right? Like, I want, I want that uh, Exo Manowar Zero and Bloodshot Zero and Bloodshot One cover with the fancy shiny cover on it because they're cool. Um, and, uh, and I got this really cool retailer incentive variant where, like, I, I've got some friends that are retailers. And I get that being a retailer, especially now in comics, is not easy, especially brick and mortar. So I made sure that if you back me at the retailer level, it is guaranteed to double your money. You know what I mean? Oh, like you don't have to inflate cool. the prices or anything. It's just right there. You're getting double your value. Um, and then, oh, my God, you got, everybody's got to go and check out the Cena Grace cover. So this is me. I really like right? that Cena Grace cover. This is me, like, nerd. I mean, Cena made it. But this thing, I am just, I just nerded out so much on this because the cover itself is pretty cool. It's, um, there's a bit of like a Tintin homage going on there with the running on the cover and the circle in the back. But it, it, it's it's also very period specific and it, it looks pretty much like an old cover. And then Dave Lentz, my amazing, by the way, if Dave Lentz, my amazing letterer and designer watches or listens to the show, uh, he is going to give me so much crap that it's like an hour in before I mentioned his name. <laughs> not let me hear the end of it. So sorry, Dave, but here's your shout out. So he aged the cover. So you can see the stains on it. You can see the the, the uh, uh, cover folds and the spine ticks on there. Very much like what Lemire did with uh, Black Hammer 1945. Yeah. And so it looks like an old comic book, right? And that's cool. That's awesome. I love that, but that wasn't enough for me. <laughs> so when I went and took the tour of the printing company, uh, Wellspring Comics, which is a, a branch of Greco, like I said, in, in historical Plymouth, Michigan, um, the, the, the person giving me the tour, Melanie said, oh, we've got this cool new thing we're doing. It's called a soft touch laminate. I go, I don't know what those words mean. And she says, here, look at it. And I looked at it and it didn't look any different. And I'm like, what is this? And she goes, touch it. And I touched the cover and I said, ooh, that feels like suede. And she goes, yes, it does. That's what a golden age comic feels like. So the Cena Grace cover is aged digitally to look like an old comic. But we're putting it through the soft touch laminate pressing, which means it's going to feel like an old comic as well. We're That's literally cool. calling it the granddad's attic variant because it's going to feel like it was in your grandparents' attic since 1945. <laughs> That's awesome. Awesome. And yet, when you send it to CGC, it'll still give you a 9.8. Nice. <laughs> Perfect. Best of both worlds. Yes, definitely. Now, uh, speaking about, about the creative team, uh, tell us a little bit more about them and also, like, how, how did you get this creative team assembled for this project? So, I got I got to be really careful. I, I've been told by people smarter than me that I, I got to quit saying that I'm lucky because because when you say that you're lucky in everything, especially in a creative endeavor, it undersells your own hard work mm -hmm. and it undersells the hard work of other people behind the scenes. Yeah. When you're saying that it all relies on luck, but twice now with parallel two and a half times with parallel, parallel special edition, and then Jane American, I have gotten exceptionally lucky with my creative teams. Um, parallel was set up by source point for me. So that kind of just like was handed to me again, very atypical I've said it before this one um i put it together with dr christy blanche my editor who is an amazing author in her own right 
Uh, she has written some very successful books. She is a retailer, owns her own comic shop in Muncie, Indiana. She is also uh, one of the most in-demand um, uh, for, for panels, uh, uh, moderators of panels across the country at all your biggest cons. And uh, we, when I was at Baltimore uh, for the Ringos a couple of years ago, uh, we basically, we, we were talking and she was my den mother and made sure I didn't die at my very first Awakon than I ever did. <laughs> she had my head above water the entire weekend. And then by the end of it, she's like, she's like, I'm going to edit the book for you. And I was like, fantastic. And it's through Christy that we found Annie. Annie at 21 years old is a customer at uh, Christy's store. And, oh, nice. you know, a design major at Ball State University. And when you like look at those pages, I mean, there's a reason why that panel on one of the five pages of Jane and Mamie, her mother and her Rosie outfit in 1943 embracing, you know, Jane at 12. There's a reason why that is one of the two images like on my first retractable banner to take to shows because Annie is talented beyond her years. Um, in the same way that I think the last time we were on the show, we were talking about about uh, Adam Silver Ferris, who did my uh, art for Parallel, being able to draw ambiguity and me not even knowing quite what that means, but the dude can do it. Annie has got a grasp on representing emotion and representing emoting and feeling on the page that is unparalleled for somebody her age, and I couldn't be more proud of her. And then Dave Lentz also came through Christy because uh, he's just a genius and can do everything. Um, when you take a look at, like, depending on what you're backing at, um, if you get a, one of the um, telegrams, which is actually a, re, a, a realistic relation, uh, recreation of a Western Union telegram um, that you can kind of see in those sample pages on the Kickstarter of, you know, when, when the chaplain comes to the door and your soldier isn't coming home. And when you, well, actually, if you're a physical backer now, because we hit our second stretch goal, everybody's getting this commemorative war bond. And uh, I wrote those, I researched those, but Dave designed the crap. Those are going to look so cool in your backer package, your backer kit when those things come through. Because it's um, it kind of flashes back. My inspiration was for that. I don't know if anybody had this, but if you ever went to like a historical city, like on a school trip or a family trip when you were a kid, and you could go to the gift store and you could buy that little packet of the aged old documents and suddenly the Gettysburg Address was on your wall. Um, yeah, it like, it's like an old age parchment like that's totally like the western union telegram looks and will feel like a how about uh like like cena grace and Amelia ewart um how was it working with them and how did you get them on board and oh amazing i mean M malia was somebody who we talked to early on in, in the art process before annie came on board and then she went off to work with dreamworks so i mean she was somebody who i've been in contact with before and she's somebody who who christy knows as well uh you know, having having somebody who's got a little bit of weight in the comic industry, even in the indie side of things, uh, mm -hmm. you know, be on your side and have a lot of context is, goes a long way. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, having Dr. Christie in your corner is is not a bad thing. Um, and and Malia's amazing, right? And and uh, loved my ideas and then executed it beyond my belief. And then Cena's just somebody I've known for a long time. Uh, like I met Cena at a con. Oh my God, a million years ago, maybe where <laughs> it was, it was right at the point where he was coming. He was just done being editor of the walking dead and he was just leaving sky running skybound more or less for Kirkman. And, you know, he was publishing some stuff through image himself 
And uh, but it was like before he was on X-Men, it was before he wrote Iceman. And it's definitely, you know, now he's doing a Superman book. Um, and it was just somebody I always stayed in contact with. Like he and um, Jeffrey Brown of Chicago were kind of the two comics professionals who um, who I had met at cons, who stayed in contact with me and were invaluable as far as inspiration, support and even advice when I was writing and going through the early kind of birthing pangs of parallel um questions about chicago for uh for jeffrey brown and he had them for me you know he had answers from for me and questions about like how do i say this to my editor how do i say this to the editor-in-chief mm-hmm. of the publisher uh cena came through with that for me as well as a lot of support and so when we were kind of like in a jam um when when our original cover artist um, kind of fell through us on, on us and not the 11th hour but like 11 35 p.m uh right before we had to go live with the kickstarter like i reached out to cena and he was like i got you and produced that beautiful piece you know what i mean and it was like awesome. it was me trying not to like call on the friend card and him not being phased by it at all and was <laughs> like let's do this and 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 they were they were brilliant it was it's been it's been amazing to have artists of their talent and their ilk and their um, absolute grasp of the medium uh, be on board for this. That's awesome. Nice. Um, Now, kind of going back to, you know, the campaign and everything, um, you kind of already kind of talked about this a little bit, but um, like what made you choose Kickstarter? And also I know that it was very kind of untraditional uh, process with, uh, with parallel, but how has this been different? Um, going through Kickstarter instead of like a traditional publisher? Um, I, I mean, I, I guess, I mean, be, it's new for me, so it's hard to speak to, right? This is my mm-hmm. first experience for it, right? This would be like, this This is like asking me, you know, two years ago, what's it like to be published by a publisher? Like, I don't know. Yeah. This is the only thing I've ever done. So mm-hmm. this is the first time I've done this. So it, it, it's hard to answer like what it's like. I mean, Kickstarter was chosen because... I was told by people smarter than me that that's the way comics are made in the 21st century and you've got to do it this way. Right. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, um, how it's different though is, I mean, obviously massively different. There is in one way I've got so much more control over it, right? Like I'm controlling the campaign and I wrote it and I'm promoting it. Not that I wasn't doing a lot of promotion before, uh, but, but it, it, it's, it's different when you know more. Number one, even though I don't, I didn't know anything about Kickstarter, but like, like having so much more knowledge about producing a comic in my back pocket, um, while still learning on the fly about new things has been a very different experience. I mean, doing this, and I got to be careful, not on my own, because obviously an amazing amount of collaborators and a lot of people actually helped me on the Kickstarter and, and, and stuff like that, but like, but like it makes me realize how much source point did for me on the first book right as mm-hmm. hard as i thought i worked on that script i worked on the script i mean my legwork for parallel came in the promotion and came in the 18 months of of covid and then the 18 months after that of promoting it and going on literally 75 shows to to promote it before the sellout the ringo nominations but like the fact that source point took care of finding me the artist and the editor and the letter and kind of doing all that. And I'm not involved in the money portion of it all. I just signed a contract and then went out and, and sold books for them. Um, doing it this way has been eye-opening. It's a lot more work in many ways, 
but it's also in some ways a lot more rewarding too because because when you have when you have your fingers on every single button at once when any one of them pays off or any one of them bears fruit like like you know where that came from and 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 you can if you have that ability which i really don't you can pat yourself on the back or say congratulations to the people who helped you and it's much more direct um and in that way it's a little bit more satisfying i think Yeah, very cool. Yeah, I I come from um, the background of like the DIY punk movement and like going to DIY shows and stuff like that. And I feel that Kickstarter is very similar to to that in the comics. Well, industry. well, what I'm discovering, and again, part of this is smarter people than me informing about this is like, you know, Kickstarter as a as a as a crowdfunding platform has been doing its job for however many years it's been doing its job now, mm -hmm. and my understanding is that it is. rapidly transforming into a major method of distribution for stuff as well now Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. as, as the distribution method kind of falls apart, especially in the comics industry. Mm -hmm. um, it is now actually almost as important for getting the book into existence as it is just getting books of all shapes and sizes into people's hands. Yeah. 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 I mean, even in like in video games with like, like Shovel Knight and Hollow Knight and other games that don't have Knight in the name, um, <laughs> they, you know, like if it wasn't for something like Kickstarter or crowdfunding, I mean, those wouldn't exist. And those are absolute classics. And even, even tabletop gaming, like yeah. tabletop gaming is one of the bigger niche industries in, in nerd culture right now. Mm -hmm. Yep. And a huge part of it is not only getting funded, but distributed just straight up through Kickstarter as opposed mm -hmm. to, company or box store pretty pretty amazing and, and like in the way things are changing nowadays i mean it's it's really nice to kind of have things more in the creator's hands and able to like you know kind of direct things and and i and also you know you don't have as many you know fingers in the pot and you know sometimes sometimes obviously you know cooks in the kitchen is a good thing but you know as a, the cliche says too many cooks is definitely will ruin any kind of meal so it's like It's it's kind of nice to see the the people who have the idea able to you know get their idea out without you know so much you know commentary or so much like other people that they need help from to do it. Yeah. And Now I'm not going to lie to you. the The end goal is mm -hmm. once we fund the 120 page OGN, I'm going to take that to some some publishers. Some oh yeah, I, I haven't absolutely. decided what I'm going to do. With a 32 pager yet, there's a decent chance that I let it lie as it is because those covers are so cool and it might just exist as it is. And just the people who are who are generous enough and supportive enough to back it are the only ones who get it. Um, the other thing I might, you know, uh, uh, Annie might do a cover and we might just print a stack of them and I take them around to like, you know, local shows and things like that. Yeah. Get a few more out there. But like, I mean, my long term goal is to get the the OGN into libraries. And, Yeah. you know, and that's that's my long term dream. And that would probably take something more than than me distributing on Kickstarter. But but you never know. I completely agree with what you're saying. I think it's a I think it's a kind of a magical, interesting way to do things in the 21st century. And you're able to instead of of come going to you know like a dark horse uh, who does a lot of of this kind of publishing um, with with Kickstarters and crowdfunding. You, you can go to them, not with just an idea, but you go with them with the actual physical product and say, hey, you guys don't have to do anything but just like print these out. <laughs> and like, right, and which is what, them. which is yeah. honestly, and what, what you're saying, Bri, is like that gets at the core of 
how weird the publishing of Parallel even was. Yeah. Because that's all I had was half of a script. Mm -hmm. And nobody wants that online. Nobody wants <laughs> yeah. that in person. I mean, anybody's going to take yeah. your unsolicited, you know, nobody wants your unsolicited pitch. And if somebody wants something, it's your art and maybe a pitch and not half of a script from somebody who doesn't know what they're doing. So like the yeah. fact that that existed in the world and I talked my way into a contract with, um, you know, at the time, one of the bigger indie publishers, you know, on the rise is like, I, I don't even, I still haven't, that hasn't sunk in. It's been a couple of years. <laughs> <laughs> it's yeah. That is pretty amazing. Pretty cool as well. So, well, um, you know, but about to wrap this up, but, and you've already mentioned, uh, a lot of like the incentives and like the other uh, yeah thing uh, with the stretch goals and everything like that. Uh, I know you have the one stretch goal that you haven't hit yet. What is the uh, what is that goal? Uh, if if you do well, hit if we hit that goal, which if we hit that goal, I mean, I I set that goal where it did, where I did because mm -hmm. if we hit that, like there is basically a zero percent chance the OGN doesn't just happen whenever we're ready for it to happen. Um, because like I said, every dollar of those stretch goals goes to defraying the cost of the book that comes next, not yeah. to line my pockets uh, at all. Not a penny of it goes to me. There's the whole transparency section down at the bottom of where every penny goes. Mm -hmm. um, but that next stretch goal, we turn it into the, again, comic book nerd, the proverbial director's cut with, it goes from 32 pages and we tack on somewhere between um, six to 10 more pages of awesome bonus material, including there'll probably be, my plan would be to have a couple of shots of actual uh, stills of the real wall wire factory. So like you will be able to compare and contrast the art to the actual place as That's it looked cool. in 1946, you know, and some, nice. you know, some concept art and, maybe some annotated pieces as well and uh that would be really cool to get out there oh very cool that sounds awesome so definitely um you know but aside from from getting in on the the ground level of of this project and like being able yeah. to to get one in your hands that's also a good incentive to to uh go ahead and you know and donate. yeah and that's like i, I you um, know unless you're like a unless you're like a kickstarter veteran i think sometimes you see a project and um, and you see that it's hit its goal and you're like, well, I guess they don't need me. And that's not true at all. No. Like, like number mm -hmm. one, number one, if you back something, whether it's hit its goal or not, you're going to get a really cool you know, reward. In this case, you know, the, the, the physical copy or a digital copy of the Jane American one shot with one of those wicked cool covers. Because we've already hit those other two stretch goals, you get all kinds of awesome cool bonuses, too. Like your name's going to be immortalized in the book. Um, you're going to get the war bond. You know, you buy in at a certain level, you're going to get that awesome recreated uh, Western Union telegram. I mean, there's just like there's always a reason to back, especially indie comics online. You're going to get something cool out of it. But supporting indie comics through a Kickstarter um, is literally in a lot of cases what puts food on tables and clothes on backs. Mm -hmm. Right. Exactly. Teaching's doing that for me. But like I'm paying my creative team and I'm getting it out into your hands and I'm getting you something that hopefully you're going to love and cherish for years to come. It's very cool, definitely. Well, that's awesome. Thank you very much awesome, awesome. for for talking to us, and uh, My best, best of luck on on the rest of the campaign and any other future endeavors as well. This is it's pretty amazing to talk to you and and feel feel the passion that you have for this project. So cool. I appreciate. Hey, I appreciate the time, and yeah. and don't be a stranger. Anybody who's out there checking this out, 
you come and check me out. You know, my teacher, I've only got one piece of social media because you have too much social media and that's how you get fired as a teacher. What am I on Kickstarter, guys? J Douglas Rice, just the letter J. You cannot miss me. I'm wearing a hospital guard down flexing right after colon cancer surgery. I'm holding an IV. Mm-hmm. I look awesome in that picture. You'll find me. Come and chat me up on there and I will talk your ear off just like I talk these guys' ear off much less. <laughs> what has it been? Like three, four hours? I don't know. Something like that. <laughs> it's, it's been three days, actually. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All I know is it's been quality hours. How yeah, long oh, hours. you are too kind. It'll, it'll only take like 20 minutes. <laughs> yeah, hey. Um, hey, yeah. Kickstarter.com. Go back, Jane American. There's only a couple of days left. I want you to read this book. Uh, help That's me get it out there in the world and get yourself a copy of it and then Go check me out on Instagram and we'll talk. Awesome. Thank you so much, Jason. We'll have all the the links to your socials. We'll have all the links to the Kickstarter as well in our show notes as well. If you want to just click on that, uh, that'd be, that'd be, that'd be great. Perfect. Excellent. My pleasure. It was so much fun guys. Uh, Hey, if you need, if you need the testimonial to how much fun we have when we're on this together, uh, uh, all you got to do is tell the people that we were talking for like 40 minutes before. <laughs> yeah, sure. Which, and, yeah, which yeah, all right, we're back. Which and might become the after credits. Yeah. Yeah. We'll you guys are very good at your job. I appreciate thank you, Jay. Thank you. Always a pleasure, brother. We'll have the links in the in the episode notes so that you guys can. Thank you. Thank you very much. I definitely feel like. All right. Jane American sounds like it's going to be a really fun project. Yeah, it does. Definitely. It does. And like I said earlier, uh, I think Jason is quite talented in his writing and Jane American. It it feels very um, comprehensive. It feels historical. It feels personal. It, It has a lot of different feelings. I think it's hard for, you know, amateur writers to convey. So. I think he is uh, quite talented. And that Cena Grace cover is fucking awesome. Yep. Yes. The rock star, speaking of. All right. So now I guess we're going to jump into our main subject then. And uh, it is Richard's choice this week. So I will let him go ahead and take the microphone. Unless you want me to introduce the book first, Richard. Do we introduce I'll it? dive in. Um, we're doing a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, The Last Ronin. It's by Kevin Eastman, Peter Laird, Tom Walt, Isal Escorza, Isaac Escorza, Ben Bishop, Luis Antonio, Delgado, Sean Lee, Sam, Samuel Plata, and finally Rhonda Patterson. It's from IDW. There's and a the, lot of people on that creative team. Mm-hmm, you, you, forgot, incredible. you forgot the professor and Marianne, by the way. <laughs> oh, yeah, right? Yeah. <laughs> All right. Oh, my God. You know how old of a reference that is, bro? It is. I know. Shows, yeah. shows for the 50s. I get it. You know what? If you get it, you're cool. Yes, you are. And you're also it, part of that special part of our generation where there wasn't enough on TV, so everything was syndicated oh, yeah, yeah. So from our watched, parents' gener- generation. Yeah, 40 yeah. year old shows. Uh-huh. <laughs> exactly. Like, I've seen so much Honeymooners and I Love Lucy. And oh my I God, yeah. Because <laughs> they were made 40 years before. Oh, me. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but yeah, no, uh, TDTMNT, uh, The Last Ronin, this has been like a super acclaimed uh, indie book since the first issue came out. And um, spoiler, I'd say it lives up to the hype. Uh, the book uh, starts out, we have one final Ninja Turtle, and he is, you know, weaponed and armored up to the gills, and he has all the weapons of the old Ninja Turtles. And also, he has uh, his brothers kind of 
you know, talking to him in the back of his head. Um, we don't really get a reveal on who this turtle is, but we do know for sure that he's the last one. And basically, he's breaking into a city uh, that's, like, walled in, and you eventually find out it's New York. And he is picking up, uh, you know, the the, 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 the all-time feud between the uh, his clan and uh, Shredder's clan, the... Uh, yeah, Oroku. Oroku, the Roku. Thank you. Mm-hmm. I wrote it down. I hate, when it, I hate when it's on the tip of my tongue. I'm like, uh, 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 yep. uh. Story of my life. <laughs> Personally, I, I did. Yeah, I feel you. Yeah. So, so yeah. So this turtle is fighting a bunch of uh, Foot Clan soldiers, but they're mostly like cybernetic warriors. They're more robots than humans. And he tries to make it all the way to the building where uh, uh, Shredder's uh, grandson. Hiroto, who is uh, running things in the Foot Clan, now now resides. And he's just like, for him, this is a suicide mission. He's in there to just finish the job, bring honor to the family, and he doesn't need anything else that day. He does not plan to survive. Um, but basically, the uh, the, the, um, the fences at uh, Hiroto's building, they're a little bit too intense. And though he makes it far... He does not make it all the way, and he eventually gets blasted out of the building, you know, after fighting a bunch of mou- mousers. Mm-hmm. But uh, you would imagine that the fall would kill him. Even mm-hmm. our turtle friend would imagine the fall would kill him. And he somehow, he's he's beaten the shit, but he does survive. And he makes his escape, but a young girl named Casey kind of helps him into the sewer and, you know, help, or, or excuse me, no, he makes it to the sewer, but she kind of follows him. And he is ready to to give up. You know, he's like, I failed at my mission. And he's going to use uh, Leonardo's broken sword to commit Sipiklu, like, you know, ritual mm-hmm. suicide. And basically, he passes out and Casey finds him. And when he wakes up, he's in the sewer and he's with an aged April O'Neil who immediately recognizes him as Michelangelo. And that's the uh, opening and the premise for our story. I know. And like always, we're 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 basically a book club, so we expect you know there's going to be spoilers. So yeah, yeah of yeah. course, <laughs> yeah. And if you haven't so, heard that yeah. spoiler or not yet, then you don't care. So <laughs> I will that say this. Um, I, oh, I, I I did not get me oh. until I read it this time. I still I I was under the impression that they never re- revealed it because I was just ah. like I'm surprised I didn't get spoiled for me. So I was actually kind of shocked when it was at the end of the first issue. So you're not an OCD bastard like me who needs to know the answer right away. <laughs> okay, I <laughs> no, get it. No. <laughs> yeah, all right. No, I'll find out when I get there. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, right. basically, what you get in this book, it's a very, it's a lot of Unforgiven and uh, if you ever read Lone Wolf and Cub, but it's just, you know, one last mission to like, you know, restore honor, restore the culture. And also we get flashbacks to see the end of the uh Ninja Turtles, as they were. Um, we see uh, K- Casey Jones and uh, April. You know they're together. They're dating, or I think at this point they're they're engaged. Mm-hmm. And you see them in the past, and the turtles come, and basically you just kind of see a random fight where they um, they they got ambushed by the Iraqi Iraqi clan, and they're just you know just showing you how deep this battle is. But when we when we come back from the flashback, we see that uh, April's a little bit worse for wear. She has a cyber, you know, like a cybernetic arm and leg now. Mm-hmm. And what we find out is that there were peace talks between the Oroki Oroki clan and uh, the turtles, 
to 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 finally squash this feud. It was set up by Hiroto, this uh, grandson of uh, of uh, Shredder, and uh, and his mother uh, Sarai. I, I always said Karai, but I could be wrong. Karai, oh, Karai, Karai. Yeah, but um, Karai is uh basically. I didn't know. I was like, she's like palette swapped Electra. I like her. <laughs> oh yeah, no, absolutely, and that goes back to the Daredevil roots of, of Ninja yeah, Jones. yeah. Um, uh, but basically, it the, these peace talks are a setup. Hiroto basically takes this opportunity to uh to uh take out uh Splinter and Leonardo, and I uh or excuse me, Splinter and Donatello, and then Leonardo and Casey Jones are taken out at a simultaneous attack uh, by uh, by Baxter Stockman, who's in league with them. And basically, and unfortunately, Raph gets taken out when he goes on re- revenge, but he's also taken that, able to take out Karai as well, who her son keeps her like on life support mm-hmm. <laughs> in a very dark way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And at first you think it's like a kind of like an Oedipus thing, but it's it's not. <laughs> it, it turns not. out to be the exact yeah. opposite. Of the nice. Oedipus thing. Yeah. So. But yeah, so basically we find out that uh, Mike initially, the reason why Mike and April didn't know each other were alive is that when it all went down, since everyone was separated, uh, Splinter and Donatello were he- heading to Japanese, Jap- Japanese, Japanese for the, <laughs> the peace talks. And mm-hmm. that's where they were ambushed, not knowing this. And in Comunicado, Michael Mike went to go, you know, help them or you know, tell them what happened with Leo and Casey and Raph. And basically, when he gets there, he finds out the whole situation, and it's such a shell shock for him. You know, I guess pun intended. That he just kind of goes on a spiritual journey. He like hikes into the mountains and goes to meditate and tries to find peace. And then even when he does find peace. You know, like in all things, he finds prejudice too because the world mm-hmm. won't leave him alone, and that's what helps him on his decision. That he's like, you know what? For the honor of me and my family, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go ahead and take this like last suicide run journey to 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 take down the Hiroto clan. Mm-hmm. Who the Hirotos? You know, this guy's done really good for himself. Like he he's built a wall around the city of New York. Basically, he runs the whole city. It's on a grid that like he powers. He is the police. He is, you know, he describes himself as a god. Mm-hmm. And like anyone in his organization that he fails of is like brutally murdered. Like I, side note, just in uh, fiction, I always love, or I guess this happens in real life too, where it's just like this person's a despot. Like how does it inspire loyalty when you're willing to <laughs> to, to kill yeah. any lieutenant at any moment? But I guess it, it does work in real life too, right? It was total Darth Vader uh, vibes I, I got from that. When like, you know, Admiral Veers and whatnot. When when someone fails, I mean, they just instantly die, and there's a promotion. Well, I also think of like every horrible dictator in yeah. history that's ever lived. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it that one that one scene where his first general failed to uh, capture mm-hmm. Mikey, and it shows the skull on that, a pike on, and like on a pike, but like pros are eating it. Mm-hmm. It's like that's pretty gruesome, but it's also not that far fetched from reality. No. But like my whole thing, whenever I've seen that in history and in fiction, I was just like, "Hey, why doesn't somebody else just off this guy? Because he's obviously like, yeah, like you have yeah. no job security here." <laughs> yeah, absolutely, absolutely. It's just complete and total of brainwashing and fear. Yep. Mm-hmm. Sounds like fashion. And so what we what we do find is that uh, April and uh, her daughter Casey are part of the resistance uh, in New York, and April has uh, 
the Fugitoid's head, uh, Professor mm-hmm. Honeycutt. And basically, since like you know, Mike wants to do another suicide run, and he's just like, I just want to kill him. Like, I don't want any of you involved. But basically, they uh, they're like, no, we have a whole resistance apparatus. We got we I've built some machines to help us fight. Let's let's do it. Like let let's make this stand. And he and basically part of uh like the gambit of uh, uh April's plan is that if she can get the fugitoid head to Baxter Stockman's uh, stronghold, since basically all systems in the city are run by um, Hiroto, but also they go through uh through Baxter system, they can basically hack through Baxter and regain control of the city by uh by basically getting the head to Baxter Straw uh, compound and uh doing some uh I guess future hacking. <laughs> <laughs> I'm in, I'm in. Cool. Right. Yeah. And so we just see a beautiful, beautiful like you know assault scene. They 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 strike at the compound. It's a lot of robots, mousers, but what we find out um you know Mike is constantly first of all he's constantly hearing the voice of his brothers who are giving him shit the whole time and telling him he's not doing things the right way and you know it's fucking with his self-esteem you can tell Mm -hmm. but he notices as he starts to take casey under her wing that casey's different she's uh stronger than a normal human she's uh more agile she uh um heals quicker Mm -hmm. and you know he talked he he confronts april thinking that maybe she does like an did experiments on her and no, April's just like, no, I think just proximity through to you guys growing up between, you know, or before I she was born be, between Casey and uh the father and April, like it, mute, it mutated their them and you know, that's why their kid came out with like these, you know, mutant strengths or whatever. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. I can't speak anymore, unfortunately. No, no, <laughs> doing better than I can. I'm understanding. Yep. <laughs> So yeah, so Casey's super tough, and now she got to, she has Mikey's training, and mm-hmm. they kind of kick ass. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they do a full assault on uh, on Baxter Stockman's uh, stronghold. They're able to get the Fugitoid in there. They're able to take Baxter out and gain recontrol of the city. At which point, Hiroto is pissed, and since he has nothing under his control, uh, we're getting ready for the final assault. <laughs> yep, definitely pretty cool and so Hiroto's a weird uh kind of a weird character because uh-huh. he even like like you see him situated as like this spoiled heir but like he does have some toughness to him yeah, like he yeah. will fuck you up but like I feel like usually that character is like uh like a uh like King Joffrey type where it's just kind of oh, like there's yeah. nothing to, like like well you were you were chosen for this like you were born into this so you have no skill and talent but no he does have skill and talent like there's reason for him to be feared even though everything's been given to him from the beginning I mean it's a different a different tack but I thought it was an interesting way to go with the character because I I really expected him to be a weenie as we <laughs> were getting to know him yeah mm-hmm. um well just really quick I I like the fact that he was like an absolute idiot because like just because you're in power doesn't mean you're smart you know like, of course not. i thought that was great <laughs> as well so go ahead no but that, that's why i was expecting to him not be able to put up much of a fight but like he yeah. when there's the final showdown between him and mikey they really go at it and definitely mikey everything mike can handle and basically he has a a uh like t1000 like nano liquid armor suit so 
it like heals him and heals itself as it gets damaged. And uh, oh, that, that's the, the side thing that's happening. He can't, Mike goes it alone, but Casey, of course, wants to help him. But when they took down the uh, the uh, the 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 whole uh, the whole power grid from Hiroto, they also messed up like the uh, drainage system. So the whole city's about to flood, including their uh, underwater sewer layer. So mm-hmm. Casey gets preoccupied trying to help her mother and save her mother from drowning with that. So that's how Mike is able to get his final showdown all alone. And like I said, him and Hiroto beat the crap out of one another. It's a pretty epic final battle as far as uh, final battles go. (laughs) Absolutely. But yeah, in the end, I mean, Mikey got exactly what he wanted. He was able to restore the honor to the clan, but it was definitely a suicide run. Some of the dudes that he fights along the way, like he fights this giant mechanical winged, like it's just a robot, but it looks menacing as hell. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And so does the big like mountain looking dude. Oh yeah, <laughs> I yeah. Got a lot yeah. of Game of Thrones reference today. I don't <laughs> know yeah. But yeah, and he just gets the final satisfaction that he did right by the family. That you know, he not only did he save the city, but he regained the family's honor. He took out Hiroto, who yeah, he should have been working on some airs, buddy. it didn't seem like it was gonna end well but like basically Hiroto tried to use like uh like the suit's electrical powers to like kill Mikey but Mike was able to withstand it and it ended up killing them both Mm -hmm. and he just left Casey with one final lesson that like you know there's a whole art of war but in the end you should know peace and like you don't want to live this way fighting forever and Casey's like cool and she continues her training but she also adopts four turtles and we do get a little addendum I guess this is what Mikey sees when he dies and it's just like him waking up from a dream and him it's him his brothers Master Splinter and Casey are all there together yeah it's really cute oh sorry Carrie it's okay I liked it it was (laughs) yeah it took me up as well. So yeah, no, it's an excellent book, and it gets yeah. you right in the field for sure. It does. So the yeah. art is really good, and I love how in different sections sections of the book, like when they yeah. show um, Mikey's like a uh, pilgrimage training where he's out here meditating. It's done mm-hmm. in the classic uh, Eastman and Laird. I, I think Eastman drew those pages himself, but it's yeah. in that black and white. The turtles, everyone's a little bit stouter, like they were in the original turtle uh-huh. book. Yeah, exactly. And then you got that dark gray, like you know, background feeling, you know, that, that from the original books as well. So I thought mm-hmm. that was that was really cool. And then the really art nice for the main book is also really, really like just really vivid art. Yeah, and yeah. you can. It just gives you good scope of the city. Like everything has like a nice designed to it like this futuristic you know Walden New York looks really cool all all the arbors all the robotics that they use look you know really cool but they all have that like now like like it's like um like Star Wars how you have that retro futurism and everything kind of files like and stuff so it's like oh yeah these are just you know really well done uh versions of those original Ninja Turtle designs from the original book yeah, it I really totally, enjoyed it. It totally is has the homage to you know in in the artwork, uh, even the modern stuff, like you were just saying. I mean, it yeah, they did a pretty good job, like staying true to the vibe and the feel. And um, so, I I had heard the same things as, as you have, you know, about about this being a great book. And you know, obviously, I, I enjoyed it. 
Um, and I obviously like, you know, Ninja Turtles and I had gone through that big binge and read all the original materials earlier, um, or I guess late last year, because we're in Maine now. Um, and, um, and, you know, loved it and enjoyed it. Um, but I have, um, like an issue with like the, the, like Marvel, the end kind of stories, you know, like the, the post-apocalyptic, like one last job, Mm -hmm. you know, like, because they're so bleak. And they're so like dour, and I'm like, come on, like let's just have a little bit of like levity and happiness to this. So that's the only reason why I never read this was because I was like, oh, you know, really? I, I I I love I love the Ninja Turtles, and yes, they you know in the comics they're more dark and they're more gritty than they are like you know from the the cartoons and everything. But still, there is still obvious levity and there's still humor in in turtles like even the dark stuff and so but reading this like like i'm like oh the humor is still there and it still has that levity and it still has the campiness i mean herodo's fucking camp as hell yeah he's (laughs) really camp and and so i I, I felt like um like the levity i felt i still was like oh maybe there should have been a little bit more levity because like yeah you know mike's the levity guy and he's so serious however i felt like there was a little hopefulness like once he became um uh casey sensei that like i felt like that little part of the story brought a little a set of hopefulness that i really enjoyed that like you know a little bit more upbeat and how we get that epilogue at the end that this isn't really the end is really cute yeah absolutely and um but yeah said, you're right Hirodo's camp is shit <laughs> yeah which just made it great and like like I, you notice that like Hirodo and also casey have so many costume changes throughout this mm-hmm. book and so i thought that was funny and including casey i don't know i mean um there, there's one uh, issue, one chapter, I guess, because we're talking about the actual collected edition, um, where she's Doctor Afra, <laughs> like, like from Star Wars. She has, yeah, like... she's Doctor Afra. Um, yeah. I was gonna say, they, there's a character in a Final Fantasy VII remake that the design for that character, the design for Casey, when you fish first introduce her, like when she gets her motorcycle stolen, where we don't know who she is. Yeah, they're almost the identical design, and I feel like the design of her at the end of the book when she's uh. Uh, Mikey's apprentice. It's he's very very bluebird from uh, uh, Batman. Yeah, I, I was gonna say that's that's a perfect take because I was I was like some kind of hybrid between Huntress and Nightwing, and yeah, bluebird is the, <laughs> is like the hybrid between Nightwing and Huntress. So yeah, that's that's a good good uh, good pull. Yeah, yeah, but, but I see that. a lot of good like like you said, design and costume changes for both of them. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I I have a question specifically for Carrie. Yes. Um, <laughs> I've been I've just been crying off screen yeah. like the last um, the whole time you guys have been talking. And, so go ahead. Um, so, uh, I know that you're not as like well versed in like the deep Ninja Turtle lore, uh-uh. and there's some deep Ninja Turtle lore in here, like yes. the Fugitoid and like Karai and yeah. whatnot. So, did I? I did you feel like that was kind of like a, a a door or like a wall or did you feel like this was still like kind of a open you know like a book that someone like who doesn't really know much about the ninja turtles could read and like enjoy so if you're a child of the late 80s cartoon like i am you know enough you know all the main people you should know and you know that most of them are dead so that's enough to make you like care about the story at a surface right. level right Mm-hmm. But like Fujitua or whatever it's Fujitoid and like everybody else, I'm like, who the fuck are these people? Yeah. I got super <laughs> lost. And like Fujitoid's cute, 
I don't know why he went on a spectacular kill spree of that guy, but I was like, fuck yeah, cool death scene, bro. Like, yeah. it, some of it's really good, but it made me very confused as to like. So, um, so the Fugitoid is a, uh, he's an actual alien scientist uh-huh. that accidentally trapped himself in like a robot body. So, like, there's a human consciousness. And that, that they are more like the, the Ninja Turtles and all those characters have an intimate relationship with. And and the alien and the, and there's another aliens that want to uh to basically kidnap him and make them like like him create an army for him. So he committed suicide to kill that guy. But I I think he was already dead because he was right, really like he was right. Yeah. He was like on life support, so that was like his final thing. Right. It's like it's like the the once again Terminator Two uh, reference, like uh, the part where Miles Tyson. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, any excuse uh, to make that sound is. I'm sorry, Gary. Yeah. Uh, sorry about that. Well, it's just so, been a rough week. Yeah, and, and, and I think it's very indicative. Like this is a very, it's a fun, it's a, it's a, it's like a romp in a way, but at yeah. the same time, mm-hmm. it's super like heartstringy. Like you know, what? there's there's a lot there's a lot of emotion in this as well. I really liked the book. Um, I don't think it's going to make people cry the way I'm crying, but it's, re- it's really good. The artwork's phenomenal. I really loved the, um, God damn it. I really loved the flashback scenes with the other turtles. I loved the, the, um, original black and white Eastman Laird artwork, um, now Johnny's like attacking me because I'm salty. But um And I like um in those flashback scenes with the other turtles when they're younger, like I love how just in comparison where in the future, yeah, they're using color, but everything's dire. And I feel like in those flashbacks, everything's bright, everything yes. pops. Like yes. they have all their bandanas on there, the right colors, yeah. but just the world itself just seems it's a brighter. lot brighter. Yes. And then so it's such a good contest. So when you go yeah. back to the, the the present day, it's like, oh, everything seems so fucked here. Yeah, it's <laughs> yeah. so gritty in the present day of the comic. And the artwork, the coloring's phenomenal. The artwork's phenomenal. Um, that was my first time being introduced to the original Eastman Laird artwork. So I really, it's funny because you say stout, Richard. I said chubby. I was like, "This is so chubby and cute. Yeah. I love this There's, artwork." And, and the my, the first uh, word in my head is "squat." Like they're oh, very, oh yeah, 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 yeah. But um, little tanks. But like, <laughs> I mean, it's so. I guess the answer to your question is it's inaccessible as yeah. far as lore's concerned, but that does not take away from the enjoyment of the book. Mm-hmm. And if anything, it makes you kind of it do- really does make you want to find out more. Because it is such an interesting background. Um, and it's like, I remember from the movie, the Oroku Kai, yeah. like going after Shredder's owner, you know? Or Splinter's owner. A Splinter, sorry. Yeah, Splinter's no owner. Like, I remember that from the movie. So, like, yeah, there's like yeah. tidbits I remember from growing up, mm-hmm. but I'm like, it it it's an excellent choice. I really yeah. it it is really when, good. When 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 oh, they were, when they were one other thing I did mean to uh, comment on. Mm-hmm. Go ahead, Brian. 
Oh, just I was just gonna say um, one thing that made okay. me want to ask that question was, um, hum, you know, like they kept on referring to the Hamato clan as in like Shredder. Or, I'm sorry, Splinter. That I did it too. Uh-huh. Splinter and the Ninja Turtles. Mm-hmm. Um, and like, and I was like, oh wait, that's kind of like like something for someone who knows like the lore. You know, that's not like for for someone who's just like, oh, like the Ninja Turtles. Like, you know, they're like, who the who the hell are the Hamato? Right. Yeah. yeah. And who yeah. are the Roku? You know, yeah yeah so sorry go go ahead richard no no all i was gonna say when we were talking about the art is that one thing i meant to comment on earlier is just when they're in the uh the present day is just how uh bulky and massive mike is like yeah. he yeah. is so imposing <laughs> i like the um absolutely i like the addition to the lore that the older they get the more like you know, like powerful they get, like the more like yeah. dense, right. I guess is the best way to put it. You know, so sturdy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, I I was gonna comment on one of the particular scenes earlier. Oh gosh, I totally mm-hmm. forget. Uh, but it. Oh shit. Yeah. Mm, I lost it. It was one of the things that Richard was talking about earlier that I wanted to talk about. Fugitoid. Not fugitoid. Hmm. It's okay. Well, it probably it might come. It back was, and, yeah, yeah. It was just all really good. Very yeah. sad for me. Definitely. But um, I I liked how April. You know, was she? She was the original crush of Raph, right? Um, that's insinuated in the movies. Yeah, I I think I think each of them had a little, had crush. A little crush. Okay, on, on April. Right. So it's yeah. it's cute to me that like. They aged her, mm-hmm. you know, like they she's got a little she's got some jowls. She's got a little yeah. bit of weight on her, you know, like mm-hmm. I think that's very I thought that was cool. She's it's it's a very realistic aging. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. I, I just I, I liked that. I liked her portrayal because, like you said, she she definitely looked older, but she was still and she also, you know, had a disability. Yeah. But she was like a complete badass still. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, so. and very much like still had time to fight with her daughter. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like I really like that and, too. And I feel like <laughs> the portrayal of Casey that she was the perfect hybrid of April oh, and yeah. Casey. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess Casey Marie. I guess is the best way to say. Yeah. It. Which True. yeah. Which but, which is funny because I call her dog Jonathan Marie. Yeah, because <laughs> uh, my middle name is Marie. But um, I I did like how that's what I was going to refer to wow. is that um when Casey and, and Mikey are talking and Mikey's like, no, you can't do that. And she's like, oh, I wasn't asking you. Yeah. I'm just telling you what's going to happen. And then like Mikey says like, oh, I was trying to figure out who you were more like your dad or your mom. Cause that is very reminiscent of young April. Yeah. Like when she was first like mm-hmm. hanging out with them and stuff, she wouldn't take no for an answer. Yeah. So I, I thought that part was really just like, again, like hearkening back to the lore that, you that has been set up since when like when did teenage mutant ninja turtles get developed like, 84 yeah so i mean just like what almost 40 years of lore that's mm-hmm. been established it's it's pretty fun it's a, it's a fun book and uh i'm a dipshit because i should know what with the word ronin what kind of story <laughs> it's yeah. gonna be but i'm like oh what's this gonna be about so yeah if you <laughs> can't understand by the title then <laughs> my, my my brain was like 
ninjas can't be ronins like why are they wrestling? okay racist that's just what uh Hirota was saying <laughs> asshole <I'm sorry. laughs> yeah all right well if i can be as campy as Hirota, i'll take it <laughs> just, just, <laughs> all right um yeah uh well let, let me just also um so what did you guys think about having like the the three voices in mike's head through the whole thing like of like the other turtles like did you guys you know, thought that was a, a good progression of the story, like like or a, a good way to have like a narrative between. Like, I think it worked the best in the first issue before you knew which turtle it was. Yeah. Yes, I agree. I think so too. I think that's. I think it worked the best there. I mean, it was a good plot device, but also it keeps those other turtles and characters in the book. And mm-hmm. I just felt bad for Mikey that just like that, like like it it works as like, oh, okay, that I totally understand that being so much trauma response. But Mikey yeah. was trying so hard, and they whoa, they just you know our own self loathing gives us so much shit. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, exactly. And that, and I think that makes it perfect that it was Mikey who survived, and that this is the story about him because like he was the one that. But, um, he he was the one that always got, yeah, and he always got shat on by like the rest of the turtles, and so like there he is like in his subconscious, you know, having the turtles once again shit on them until you know about three quarters of the way in the story where he's like, you know what, fuck you guys, I'm yeah, doing this by myself. That it's so tragic because yeah. he's like, leave me alone, and then like he realizes in that moment that like he is alone. Yeah. So I know. Thanks. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> You know, I think this season, what I'm going to do is rate things by how much I cry. Yeah, I think that'll be a good. Uh, a will good that be thing. like a a good thing or a bad thing? Take it as you will. Okay. Um, but uh, yeah. Um, I will also uh, talking about the art. Um, I loved. You know, like there's a little Easter eggs here and there that kind of gave you the idea that you were still reading a Ninja Turtles book, and I do like that there's references to the references that they originally made. Like there's a lot of like dark Knight returns poses in this book. Mm. And like, and there's a lot in like, we had mentioned earlier, like Karai dresses Electra, um, you know, in that one, in the one flashback where she fights. Yeah. Ralph and like, you know, so it's like, there's, you know, I, I liked that as well. There, there was a lot of, there was a lot of love and attention put into this and, you know, um, they definitely had me at Fugitoid because, like, you know, I, I think maybe Honeycut has been in the 2000s TMNT cartoon, but that's about it, you know. And like, the, and and that that whole Triceratons and like the and that 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 whole thing. I forget what Kring's, um, you know, alien race is, but um, like their whole war that was such a huge part of like the Ninja Turtles in the in the early 80s, the mid 80s in the comics. Yeah. So I was like, that's that was kind of cool to have all that. You know, in there, which um, I did find out later, the reason why the, the aliens look like Triceratops mm-hmm. is because that was um, Peter Laird's favorite type of dinosaur, and he mm-hmm. wanted to draw them. <laughs> that's so sweet. Yeah. I love it. Isn't that awesome? That's awesome. Yeah. Thank so, you. I love that. So yeah, that's that's pretty cool. Uh, yeah. All right. Yeah. Uh, all well, in all, really good book. Yeah. Absolutely. Any any final thoughts? Um, you know. Like... No, pick it up. It's good. Yeah. yeah pick it's... it up. Um. So this game. Uh. This. This specific Ninja Turtle book, I believe, is a de- being adapted to like a video game. Oh, sweet! Oh, it is. Yes, I, yeah. I and I'm like that. That that's probably going to be fun and very gritty. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, but and then I feel it, like you you can make it work as a video game, right? Because like you could have flash, like you could have certain levels or missions that are flashbacks where you can still use all four turtles. Oh, that's and then yeah. you know you flash back to you know just the Rodan. 
exactly that, that'd be awesome yeah you can have the solo missions and you can also have like co-op missions with like with casey marie or, or the other ninja turtles and right i like how yeah. we're so formal you're calling her casey marie uh, just because <laughs> like every time we say casey i and we're talking about ninja turtles i'm thinking about her dad i'm thinking yeah 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 so that's what that's the only reason why i, keep, I, I like in my brain i have to say casey marie. i love how like in the flashback of um of april mm-hmm when April's flashing back to the day before, to the day of the the ambush, uh, Casey's hair was cut. Yeah, and he was wearing a tie. Mm-hmm. I was like, "Oh, mm-hmm. they're gonna announce their engagement." Yeah. It's so sweet. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. pretty cool. Um, and um, when we were uh, talking about, oh my god, the thought just left my head. Brian, talk. It'll come back. But um, it was very good. Yeah, yeah. Uh, oh. Yeah, there's there's a lot of um, attention put in that's like if you're any type of like Ninja Turtle fan, like depending on what you've come in, you know, like why you're 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 liking this book or why you're picking it up, you know, because obviously you, I mean, they're a pretty popular IP, and I don't think someone who doesn't like the Ninja Turtles is not going to pick this up. Yeah, or yeah, yeah. or is going to pick it up. So you 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 have some kind of like of the Ninja Turtles. So there's something for you in this book. Yes. Yes, that's what I was gonna say. Thank you, Brian. I knew I knew it would work. But no, what Karen was saying <laughs> earlier is that I'm not like super well versed on like all of the Ninja Turtles lore. Like you know, like Carrie watched the cartoon. I've read some like that first seven issues of the original run, so I have mm-hmm. some context. But I feel like if you just know a tertiary a bit about the Ninja Turtles, that there's a le- enough here that anyone could really yeah. dive in and enjoy it because it's just a really good book. Regardless, it's just like yeah, you know that there, if you know that there's four turtles. A rat named Splinter, and you know April and uh, Casey Jones. <laughs> yeah, you should be all right. Yeah, <laughs> and you know what? I'm going to do a hot take real, real quick. Um, and speaking because you had mentioned the 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 um the 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 last Ronin is going to become a video game. Mm-hmm. Ninja Turtles best comic book video games. Best comic yeah. book. Oh, yeah, maybe. Um, yeah. As a series, uh, maybe not yeah. the best. Not the best comic book adaption of or video game adaption of a comic book, but as no, no, a, they. Just really good video games. Yeah, like oh, almost yeah. every single every single Ninja Turtle game, even the crappy ones, are are good. What's the one I like a you, lot? You like the original NES, uh, the the yeah, Fuck yeah original bro. Ninja Turtle one where yeah. where you had the overworld and like oh, oh so and good. It's so hard. Which I need to mm-hmm. we need to play because we have we have the uh, the collection. Again, Donatello. Yeah, best fucking turtle to mm-hmm. play. Oh yeah, I know we had this conversation before. I know Carrie's is Donatello. Uh, your favorite. I, I- if I remember correctly, yours is Raphael. Yes, yes, and I and mine's. mine's but um, I used well. to like to like if I played Turtles or Turtles in Time, I used to usually play with Michelangelo just because uh, I felt like the nunchucks gave you a little bit more distance. Agreed, completely. And and I actually, it's funny. I I went with Vanilla. I went with um with Leonardo a lot when I played um the arcade games, the brawlers, because the same thing with the two swords, and you had that little bit of distance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it just gives you more reach. Yep. Donatello has the bow yeah. and so does Donatello. Yeah, yeah, definitely. so does Donatello. But like they all, you know, since Raphael has those little sides, he has yeah. the, the smallest reach out of the the four. I he's, know. Also, cool in the book, um, to to bring it back to the book for a second, in one of those flashbacks, we got. I like. I feel like there's not that many instances of Master Splinter kicking a lot of ass. But we oh saw yeah, Master Splinter really kicks some ass. Oh yeah, like yeah. Splinter lopping like, head again, off. I'm not Pretty awesome. super well versed in all the Ninja Turtles lore, so maybe he kicks ass all the time. But in the stuff that I've interacted with, you know, he doesn't get to be that hardcore. No. And yo, he 
he was out here decapitating everybody for, think, <laughs> for a few scenes. I think that's his teachings. Yeah. I think he strikes rarely, but when he strikes, it's with complete force. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that's about yeah, as someone who has has like kind of deeply immersed themselves in the comics, um, they I, I yeah, it's it's rare when you get a splinter fight scene. <laughs> I am as someone who's been so deeply immersed in the comics. I'm not saying it's a good. Thing. <laughs> I'm not saying it's a good thing at all. I'm not part of this. <laughs> I spent like a week just like binging um, turtle books. But fun fact: we were at Amazing Comic Con in Las Vegas mm-hmm. end of April, and huh? April O'Neil. I'm just oh go god, you interrupt everybody. Um, yeah, I do. And so, but we were like maybe five feet away. From yeah. Mr. Eastman. Yep. And um we oh, had nice. yeah, he was doing signings and we didn't get in line in time and we didn't buy a ticket to like get a, anything signed by him. But um his handler uh basically said hi to him for us <laughs> because we were like, Can we say hi? Yeah. And he's like, he's finishing up right now. I'm like, okay, tell him we said hi. Yeah. Because we don't want to bother him and get in trouble. Yeah. He's a cute little old man. Yeah, he is. Yeah. So but on that hey, note, man. if yeah, if we're, if we're all all set, I guess it's time to uh, bring the show to a close. But Carrie, if you, I'll just say, um, an addendum to what you guys were just talking about, Brian. He's right up your alley because they, if there's not, there's few comics more punk rock than the Ninja Turtles. Very DIY, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> and absolutely. turned it into a very, and turned into a multi-million dollar property. So kudos do, to them. Him and, uh, do they Peter still Larry. have IP ownership? They do. Oh fuck! Yeah. They sold. Uh, so I don't know what the situation is because they uh-huh. sold it to Nickelodeon. Nickelodeon yeah. owns the Ninja Turtles in totality right now, but oh. they all they they do like 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 I think there's some sort they like I, you know how it is with contracts. I think there's some yeah. sort of stake because I feel like Eastman and Laird are more um, involved with Ninja Turtle stuff yeah. than they yeah. were before the Nickelodeon deal. Yeah. So I don't know what the deal is per se, but obviously. They're more involved now than then, and they got a. They probably got a very nice check. So I'm, good for them. Yeah, you know, especially coming off of the uh, the story of um, uh, Jack Kirby mm-hmm. that we did. Mm-hmm. That was your choice last season, Richard. I'm always so happy to hear where creators get a bigger piece of the pie. Yeah, than maybe what, absolutely. Yeah, I uh, I'm so happy. And, and I, Eastman is you know he co-wrote this, and because uh, like Laird. The reason he gets the writing credits is because he Eastman Laird had created an original version of the story back in the eighties, and then they kind of readapted it um, oh. to, to modern times. Oh, um, and, yeah, and so, he, but Eastman helped readapt. Oh, that's it awesome. With, with yeah, the I guess Tom Waltz, uh, who we didn't even mention in this, you know, um, he, he he's actually the he's the regular writer, and the two brothers, um, Esau and um, I forget the other person's name, um, but they Isaac, uh, Isaac. Yeah, Isaac, thank you. Um, they they're the regular artists too. So if you if you picked up this book and you like it, check out the the IDW series. It's a different universe. The the it's, monthly. Yeah, it's and it's. I'm I'm about. I'm in the five, fifth volume, and I think there's like thirteen or fourteen volumes of it. So I'm in the beginnings of it right now. But it's it's a fun it's a fun new take. Okay. You know, and it's a fun modern take as well. So it's pretty good. Well, nice. you. You little sassy boys, you've reached the end of the show. Uh, thank you to everyone for listening. Um, if you're looking to find us, we're on Instagram, Twitter, goodpods at CDB pod for our book 
for our work clubbers, Bur- book clubbers. On Friday, we will announce the next Bur- episode. Bur- I know. Oh, my God. We will announce the next episode's main subject on Instagram so you can follow along. Also, message us if that feels like it's not enough time because uh, I kind of feel that way, too. I'm on the same bandwagon or the same uh, train as the book clubbers. When I, too, find out when the book... <laughs> And sometimes it's just not enough time to read no. a lot of volumes. I'm just saying to my co-host that maybe we need to bump <laughs> that up a bit. If you want to join in on the conversation, email us at better at gmail.com. And Mr. Richard, where can we find you? Oh, I'm at TopCat360 all over social media because uh, the Miami Heat and the Florida Panthers just keep winning, except for the Heat loss last night, and I'm still very upset about it. But they're doing so great in these <laughs> playoffs. Are. A couple of eight seeds out here in the conference finals kicking ass. Yeah. So that's what I'm very excited about <laughs> all the time right now. Very cool. Yeah, that very awesome. Yeah, we've been – it's funny because we have become a – De facto a, Florida fans. Yeah, de facto Florida house. I mean, we even got my dad mm-hmm. rooting – for uh Miami. Aww, yeah, you guys fun. are so sweet. Yeah, we're giving you moral support. Yeah. Okay, and Brian, where can we find you? Uh Brian because so, like even if they win or lose, they they try their best. Thank you. Definitely, Thank you. yes. It's it's not the uh it's not the victory, it's the journey along the way, the friends we made. <laughs> <laughs> um I'm at Brian underscore C B. Um if you want weird anecdotes like that. <laughs> and uh also, um, yeah, go uh, Vegas Golden Knights as well. Yeah, yeah. again, yeah. a lot of sports. I, I'm kind of hoping for a Vegas uh, Florida final, and we might get it. That's what it's looking like. It's about to shape into. Yeah, yeah, I hope so. They uh, that was uh, we're, we're recording on Wednesday, and the the game yesterday was a trouncing of Dallas, and it was a self destruction of both the the uh, the team and the crowd. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's so. Such poor sportsmanship, I Definitely. think, on everybody. If you if you want to see a shit show like of a, 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 a bad crowd and like you know not, them not behaving correctly, watch the highlights of that game. Yeah, That's it was game really three. Yeah, it was pretty bad. But uh, also too, we spent part of our vacation our vacation. Uh, yeah, watching Florida and Carolina have that five uh, overtime. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So. Alrighty, okay. and uh, for Richard and Brian. And Johnny, because he's right here. I'm Carrie, and this has been the Comics Deserve Better podcast. Remember, everyone, comics deserve better, and everyone, which is all of you, deserves comics. Yay! Yay! Thanks, guys. Bye. Bye, everyone. Bye. Bless you, Johnny. Johnny. (laughs) Go Heat. (laughs) (laughs) Wait, is it not stopping? All right. Thank you very much. That was awesome. And that wasn't just two seconds in real time as we were waiting for the spot to, for Carrie to add that into the episode. So much to edit. So much to edit out. Can we right. start that? Start it over. Oh, you want me to start that over? I, I don't want to keep that in. Start it over. Okay.